Lauren DeVita is an Associate Professor of Family and Consumer Sciences at Baylor University and a 2013 to 2014 recipient of the Baylor Fellows Award for Innovative Teaching. She sat down with us to discuss her book, Fashion Forecasting. A fun and insightful text, it teaches readers how to anticipate emerging trends in the industry and to prepare and present their own fashion forecast. This episode will cover a wide range of topics, including cultural appropriation, trend setting, economic status and affordability, style tribes throughout history, and much more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm here with Lauren DeVita, the author of Fashion Forecasting. So welcome. Thanks for being on the show, Lauren. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Just to get started, uh, what drove you to write this book, Fashion Forecasting, in the first place? Well, I was fortunate enough to assume uh, Baylor University's fashion forecasting class back in 2011 from a dear colleague who had taught it for years prior. And uh, in the process of prepping for the course, I realized that it was just my great love. It was absolutely my passion. And uh, I really worked hard to come up with a list of um, engaging activities and also uh, extra readings for the students to do. And so uh, I started thinking, you know, I really had some ideas that I would like to share with an audience larger than just my class of uh, 25 students. And so it just happened to be fantastic timing that the author of editions one through three of Fashion Forecasting uh, was coming upon retirement and had expressed that she was no longer interested in updating the book. And I expressed my interest right at the same time that she had said she would no longer be updating. And after an interview process and uh, several months of uh, discussions, I was really thrilled to be able to uh, be given the contract to update the fourth and now fifth edition. And it really has been a labor of love because it, I just think it's the most dynamic and fascinating topic and relevant to everyone, whether you realize it or not. Absolutely. I mean, and, and that's the thing is that your discipline is so public facing. I mean, fashion is important to so many people, not just academics. And, you know, we throw around these terms and therefore we throw around a lot of terminology within the fashion industry. But I think it would be important. I think it's important to ground some of these terms in actual theory. Um, so on that note, I mean, what exactly is a trend and how do they work in the fashion system? Oh, absolutely. So we know that a fashion is just a style that is popular in the present. And it's something that's adopted by a group of people. Fashion is a group behavior. It's not an individual behavior by definition. And a trend is broader than that. It is a it's defined as a transitory increase or decrease in popularity over time. And we're used to hearing trends discussed in terms of fashion, but really we see trends in all aspects of life. Anything that has to do with um, aesthetics, it can be you know, the type of music that's popular, it can be architectural styles, it can be food and cuisine, and it, it's really everything that involves uh, tastes of style and expression. 
which is why when we look back at what we formerly liked and was formerly popular, we tend to cringe because it really is very closely connected to a particular era or moment in time and times change. But sometimes those trends get recycled. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that's a subject of the book in Chapter 5. Uh, the theorist James Laver actually crafted a timeline, and uh, it has to do with a trend from going um, after popularity, uh, being perceived as dowdy, and then eventually, many years later, uh, originally being introduced as ironic, but coming full circle to then being daring, but then once again, as it's accepted by the mainstream, considered beautiful. So uh, the only difference, he crafted the timeline in the 1940s, and thanks to technology, the process has sped up, but the underlying uh, basis for it is completely unchanged. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've noticed that within my own you know, my own fashion sense. I wear a lot of sort of 90 throwback 90s outfits now with like blue wash jeans and some Adidas's and denim yeah. on denim is suddenly cool again. <laughs> and, you know, there are some there are internal and external reasons for that. But probably one of the big reasons for it is that, uh, you know, fashion is generally for, you know, uh, the young and the up-and-coming influential designers, their tastes were formed when they were young. So many of them were really becoming observant and uh, noticing fashion in the 90s. And now that they are finally in a position to express themselves in these positions, such as creative director, and actually have a real say in the aesthetic of their brand, they're going back to what they love. And a lot of it is based in the 90s for the current crop. Along those lines, what exactly is the life cycle of a trend and how does it play out among people? I guess in this in this particular case, young people mostly. Sure. Uh, trends. I, I think the thing that uh, most people don't realize is that trends have been studied to such an extent that we really can predict the life cycle of a trend. And there are various ways you can do that. But the one that I really like is really simple. And it comes from um, an article that was actually about cigars originally when it was written. And it breaks down the trend life cycle. And the first stage is fringe. And in the fringe, uh, some outsider culture has a signature look or style or item. And it's very cool. Most people, it's a little too edgy for them. And so the basic idea of their look then gets co-opted by the trendsetters. And it goes from being fringe with these kind of outsider people to trendy with these these trendsetters and people who are at the very early stages of the fashion bell curve. And they are the ones that are willing to take the risks. And even when they take the risks, though, they will probably take a little bit of the edge out of that trend to make it slightly more palatable and not quite so intimidating. Well, after they've had it for a very short time, they will move on, but they've popularized it enough, whether they're influencers who people have seen them on um, Instagram or they're just people who have a uh, reputation in their school or social group and, and people look to them for leadership. And the trend then becomes mainstream. And 
when moving from trendy to mainstream, once again, it's going to lose its edge. If it is just, you know, extremely daring, something will happen that sort of mutes that impact a little bit. But that's what makes it more palatable to a large widespread audience. And at that point, the people who are on the fringe are probably still doing it because they're not going to be swayed by it. But the people who are trendy have moved on to something entirely different. And then it invariably comes to the end of its mainstream life cycle as new things are introduced. And at that point, the trend either will mutate and somehow become a little bit different, or it will just go away for a while until it comes back as a retro fashion. So for example, like that 90s hip hop, you know, it started out very identified with one group. And as it became more mainstream and popular, some of the really distinctive characteristics of it were kind of downplayed in favor of things like just just bright colors or just oversized. And it went away. But now, as you see, it's coming back. Mm. I mean, the way that you're describing a life cycle trend clearly has some social and political implications the example you use being like 90s hip-hop and and so i mean some people would call it cultural appropriation right like yeah take borrowing something from the margins and then introducing it in a more palatable form to mainstream culture i mean can you explain exactly what cultural appropriation is and how you approach it in your book Oh, absolutely. Well, the thing that I do mention is that the basis of all fashion is just the concept of appropriation. All fashion is ba- or fashion trends spreading are based on someone seeing a new or novel look, deciding I like that, I can do that, and then reinterpreting it themselves or purchasing something similar. So really all fashion is appropriation or or copying to some degree. Cultural appropriation occurs when a very significant uh, style or item or look that is associated with a very particular group, when it becomes appropriated by the larger group, becomes more affiliated with that new group than with the originators who often aren't even given credit as the originators of the look. And that's where it gets real dicey. Uh, It basically is not giving credit where credit is due. And uh, the big question that people frequently ask me is, well, what is the line between inspiration and appropriation? And it's a very fine line, but it can be done. And basically, it's where you take select items or something like a color scheme or a ver- or colors or patterns, but use them in an entirely new and novel way. That is inspiration. It is when you do uh, an exact copy. And the big thing where some people have been getting a lot of negative press for it is some designers have been taking just exact replicas of traditional garments that can be purchased in those native countries where they're from for a very small amount of money, not changing any of the design details at all, just replicating them and then selling them for a hugely inflated price. And uh, that is where it causes controversy because they are basically not crediting the source, just imitating it entirely and, and not using it as the creation of something new and different. 
and profiting off of it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, extensively. Um, One designer that had a problem, uh, Michael Kors had a collection that uh, used some uh, pullovers that could be purchased. Uh, They they were of uh, Mexican origin and they could be purchased for very inexpensively. But the version on the runway that was, again, just a you wouldn't be able to distinguish between the two from a distance because they were a line for line copy was retailing for, you know, 100 times that price. So that's where it gets really complicated. And the industry is still learning how to how to adapt to this because appropriation was done as recently as the 70s. You know, uh, Yves Saint Laurent did an entire collection based on Africa and it was by any definition, appropriation. And of course, at the time, no one thought any of anything of it. No one thought anything of it at all. So it is an adjustment for some of the older members of the industry to have to start thinking in these terms. But it's not as complicated, I think, for the younger members of the fashion industry. Right. I mean, it's not even just a, I mean, it's obviously an issue for people who work within the fashion industry, but also just consumers of the fashion industry. Like when I think about um, the Woodstock aesthetic, the 1960s hippie aesthetic, it was all borrowed from, you know, Native American imagery, like people wearing, that was sort of the original Coachella look, if you will. Oh, well, absolutely. Well, at the time, those people were attempting to show an anti-consumerist ethos, and they were doing that by buying uh, either uh, old clothing from uh, thrift stores or by buying them from import stores, and they were showing their lack of participation in the Western fashion system by buying these these items that were imported from other countries, um, or they were buying stuff from the Army-Navy surplus store. And unfortunately, uh, what happened was uh, it was a clear example of a concept I talk about in chapter three, trickle up. And the young people were doing it. So all of a sudden, you've got designers like Aussie Clark and again, Yves Saint Laurent, who are selling caftans that are inspired by actual caftans that are made in other, you know, cultures and are quite economical because that's that's traditional wear, but they're showing them on runways and charging exorbitant amounts for it. So it's been happening ever since then. It's just we're finally now starting to turn our attention to it in a way that we had sort of just overlooked the unpleasantness of this before. And also um, the cycle time from Woodstock to Coachella, if you look at labor's timeline, it's it just again a happy occurrence. Um, you know, uh, music festivals had not, you know, large multi-day wood um, music festivals had not been on the cultural radar, and you know the timeline changed, and they thought it was a good idea to reintroduce it, and because Woodstock really set our idea of what. This is what you wear to a music festival looked like. Everybody sort of turned to that for their style and appearance cues to attend. And it really started off as, you know, just sort of using Woodstock not only as the guideline for the event, but also for what you would wear as an attendee. Mm. Do you think that the discourse around cultural appropriation um, is moving in the right direction? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, talking about it is the first step. 
And I think people are being more deliberate with their choices and are more um, contemplative when making some some choices about, you know, what what inspires me about this culture and how will I convey that inspiration? Um, old or uh, no, Banana Republic actually did a collection uh, several years ago that was inspired by India and it got huge accolades because they said, this is how you do it right. They used some, they used a color palette that clearly had a, um, basis in Indian culture and some and some patterns, but they used them in completely different and novel and innovative ways to show that yes, this is where we got the original source idea, but we are taking it and transforming it into something new, which is what fashion is at its best. At its best, it is novel and it's it fills humans' basic need for novelty and innovation and creativity and self-expression. Mm. I mean, I completely agree with you about that. Um, I mean, you've you've talked a little bit about the trickle up theory or the lifestyle, the life cycle of a fashion trend. I don't think that people are quite the public is as aware of how much academic theory is actually grounded in fashion. Um, mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about other popular theories that are out there? Sure, absolutely. But yeah, for being derided as such a frivolous pursuit, fashion has been studied by some pretty great minds. Uh, And one of the originators of fashion theory is actually a Harvard economist named Thorsten Veblen. And he wrote a whole book based on fashion, and it's called The Theory of the Leisure Class. It came out in 19, or I'm sorry, 1899. And since then, it really set the standard for sort of defining uh, just fashion theory and how we characterize uh, mass behavior through fashion choices. And he came up with the term conspicuous consumption. That was sort of the the major the major breakthrough of his book. Um, and conspicuous consumption, it's so simple, you almost can't believe that it took somebody to state it clearly, but it really <laughs> did. And all conspicuous consumption says is uh, rich people flaunt their wealth through a highly extravagant lifestyle, which can include, um, you know, uh, the number of clothes they have, the type of clothes they have, the material these clothes are made out of. And just uh, it's funny because, you know, it's more than 100 years old, but it absolutely still holds true today. If you look at anyone's Instagram, I mean, that's all that is, is conveying this idea of uh, not anyone, of course, but uh, uh, the the rich and affluent spend their time conveying this to to their followers. Yeah, I mean, especially even with like influencer culture. Yes, that's all it is. Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because one thing that we're seeing now is all um, status is being derived not just from p- possessing the 
item. But now status comes from not having to pay for the item. Previously, uh, in conspicuous consumption, people were happy to show that they could afford these items. Now people are uh, trying to flaunt or craft the impression that they were gifted to them by the brand because that's how much esteem they're held in. And so some brands have found that um, people are putting hashtag spawn or hashtag ad next to uh, items that they did not gift to give the impression that they are so um, influential that the brand actually gave them merchandise that they did not, which is a very unique problem. It's a very 21st century situation, I'm sure, for brands to have to uh, deal with people not wanting to admit that they bought the product, but instead intimating that it was given to them. I mean, yeah, just because it's like it's a different form of cultural capital that we're being introduced to in the digital age, right? That, you know, people would gift you their products so that you could influence other people on Instagram. Like it's a totally you're just so prominent that you don't even have to pay for the clothes. I mean, it's it's bizarre. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred years ago in um, or more in Veblen's day, the height of social status would be that you had the money to purchase these items and that would be flaunting your wealth. Well, now flaunting your wealth is such that, you know, I don't have to pay for these items. So it's a real shift, but the basic motivation is exactly the same. Right. It's not just that I think you have you can afford it, but you don't have to pay, but also that your influence transcends like actual monetary wealth, that you have such a popular influence over the public that whatever you wear could actually make waves in the fashion industry. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And and it's, it's very unique. So um, that first initial work actually gave rise to a whole host of um, of follow-up works by researchers like George Simmel and um, just lots of others, Laver, who I mentioned before. And uh, they ended up coming up with additional theories or related theories. And so uh, while Veblen pioneered conspicuous consumption, that sort of gave rise to the idea of trickle down. And that means that the rich set the fashion trends and At the time, there was an actual lag time before middle class and ultimately uh, lower class people could afford these looks. And they would then eventually be reinterpreted, these styles, at a lower price point. And by that point, the rich would have then moved on to something else. And that whole model was true for quite some time. But then around the 1960s, we had the youth quake and the whole right around the Woodstock era, swinging London um, in and mods in the 1960s. And youth really became the big commodity. And because young people did not have uh, you know great amounts of wealth, the whole idea of status changed from trickle down to trickle up. And it was street fashion really became influential. And that's what I was alluding to earlier, too, when you would see uh, versions of caftans that young people bought in an attempt to be anti-consumerist reinterpreted on the fashion runway and selling for thousands of dollars. That's an example of trickle up, taking the fashion of the street and reinterpreting it at a high end 
for a wealthy consumer. So there's that. And then there actually is also a trickle across, which is really more inside a social class, how there are trendsetters inside a social class and a look can spread uh, across a group. And I mean, we see that all the time. Uh, I'm at a university. There's a pretty significant uh, sorority population. And I can just watch as a trend will spread across this particular group, all of whom are approximately the same uh, economic status, social status. And I just watch a trend ripple through this whole swath of people. And it's it's very interesting to watch as as the trend catches on. What's a trend that you've noticed recently at the university? Um, particularly brands, branding, uh, particular brands have a great hold on uh, on certain populations of our students. There's a brand that is uh, that is in Austin and it enjoyed a massive popularity and they were known for uh, brightly colored tile earrings that you could purchase in just a bajillion different colors. And I sort of watched as first one or two women in my class would have these earrings and then all of a sudden four or five women would have it and then it just seemed like everybody had it and then after a while eventually everyone said oh I'm just tired of that so that's an example these kind of um, I don't know that it's spread much outside of Texas but it got very very popular uh, here particularly these really brightly colored chunky tile earrings that were made and and it was at the point where people would just say, oh, are those and and people would just say, oh, yeah, you know, because everybody knew they're instantly recognizable. That's I mean, it is amazing to actually physically watch that sort of ripple effect happen across campus like that. I mean, I, it's like having your own little fashion incubator to apply all of your theories. It's true. And I mean, and if you know about fashion theory, it's not surprising because trends that are a highly visible catch on faster than trends that are not highly visible, which is earrings are extremely noticeable and visible. So of course those, uh, an earring trend would be very quick to catch on. Uh, trends that are uh, impermanent tend to catch on faster. For example, you know, um, earrings are very low risk, low economic risk. They were not prohibitively expensive, low social risk. If you decide you don't like them, you can take them out. And uh, just just the fact that they they really were the perfect beacon to watch as as they gained and lost popularity because they they were low commitment, low risk, low cost, and highly visible. So if it's going to take off, that sort of removes all those barriers to adoption. Unlike mm-hmm. something that's extreme, like a handbag trend, and the handbag is a thousand dollars. You know, some people might want to participate in that trend, but it's just not feasible. This, however, it's open to all. So it was fun to watch it kind of build and crest and decline. Mm. Is there a trend recently that you've witnessed that you've been really into personally and have taken on yourself? (laughs) I'm not going to lie. The whole leopard midi skirt is... (laughs) I, I I have one and I I mean it helps that I've always been a fan of leopard so it didn't cause any convincing for me 
but uh, it's not necessarily, it's leopard midi dresses and skirts are very, currently very, very popular. But because I wanted to make sure that I, when I talked earlier about a, a trend after it reaches its maximum, it has to either evolve and change or it goes away. My leopard print midi skirt is ice blue. It's not natural oh leopard print, but yeah. And I will tell you, I, I've, I think I've worn it three times this semester so far. And I always get a college student complimenting me on it every time I wear it, every single time. Because it sounds amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. Yes. I ordered it from, uh, it came from New York. I could not find it. I'd order it from Bloomingdale's and they shipped it because it, it Waco is not, is not on the cutting edge of trends. So I, it also stands out. So, I mean, you talk a lot about trends and, and different theories based in fashion, but how and you also discussed the whole evolution of how like fashion forecasting came to be in your book. Um, mm-hmm. Could you go a little bit about the actual evolution of the forecasting industry itself? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, fashion uh, forecasting did not exist in its current form. It hasn't existed in its current form for terribly long. But uh, people have always had an interest in knowing what the upper class are wearing. And that started back in the days of the court of uh, Louis XIV. And the uh, publication started with illustrations, uh, fashion plates. And it was called uh, Le Mercure Galon. And uh, people would purchase this, take it to their dressmaker, and then have fashions made that resembled those of the court. And uh, in order to do that, uh, a lot of textile manufacturers also sort of helped along the trend process by coming up with small books, swatch books or swatch cards where new fabrics and textiles would be um, available for people, designers, um, dressmakers to see and touch and get an idea of what the trends would be. And still today, the textile industry really is the source of a lot of new trends because there are some pretty significant um shows and one is premier vision and that is in paris although there are also regional uh smaller regional uh premier visions held around the world and then in uh italy there's pd filati and they and that's another textile show and so designers will go there to see what the innovations and textiles are and while they're there they'll also get an idea of what textures and fabrications and also colors are going to be important in the near future and several of them use the fabric as the springboard for the their designs and lines and the collections they design the idea of forecasting in its traditional sense that we would recognize it, where you have someone helping to connect the dots for people and understand what they envision as being popular. That really happened uh, in the 1920s. A woman named um, Toby Collier Davis started her company, the Toby Report, and she would just 
write up a little newsletter and sell it to industry members that would tell uh, retailers what important trends she saw on the horizon. And in a way, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. No retailer wants to be left behind. So they receive the trend Mm -hmm. forecast and then they make sure that they have those items and then they hit. So yes, there is a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy aspect to it. But uh, we live in an era now where you cannot force a trend. There are so many trends out there. And there is uh, a sociologist named Herbert Bloomer. And it was Bloomer who came up with the idea of collective selection. And that is there are so many competing trends out there. Individuals can pick or choose or even wait until there's something that's more to their liking. And uh, there is no monolithic trend anymore that is, you know, that the designer from up on high says, you will wear this and everyone follows. Those days are gone. The power resides in the consumer now. So really, you can hope to make a tr- that a trend will hit and you can do things to encourage its adoption, like increase its visibility and lower barriers uh, to its adoption, like, you know, keeping the price affordable. But really, at the end of the day, it's the consumer who decides what is and isn't a trend. Right. Especially because in the digital world, everything, all identity has become so fragmented. I mean, I think even in this country, we exist in completely different truth spheres. The way that some people <clears throat> listen to Fox is like a totally different existence than somebody who listens or reads the New York Times. Right. But I mean, and that could be said, the same could be said about the emergence of different fashion trends, which I think you touch upon in a really interesting way by talking about what you call style tribes. Um, Yes. What exactly are style tribes and how, if at all, does it differentiate from like fashion subculture? Um, The British author Ted Polhamus is the anthropologist who came up with the term style tribes, and he did it uh, decades ago. And the ones that he wrote about were primarily British and primarily uh, had a musical influence to them. So he is the one who coined the term. And uh, a style tribe is uh, a group of people who choose to adopt an appearance style to show that group affiliation. Um, One group that is fairly popular down in Austin is uh, like a rockabilly influence. People who drive Mm -hmm. cars from the 1950s. The men wear cuffed uh, jeans and boots and plaid shirts with white t-shirts underneath and they style their hair in a retro style. And the women in the group kind of all look like uh, the pinup girl um, Betty Page with dark hair and thick bangs and cat eye glasses and things like that. There is no barrier to that entry. All you need to do is be an aficionado of the music and aesthetic and uh, just sort of the lifestyle of the 50s and early 60s and start dressing that way. And boom, you can be a member of that style tribe. 
subcultures are a little bit different in that they are uh, groups of almost always young people, and they have chosen not to adhere to the norms of the mainstream and to show their refusal to adhere to it through their dress. And the best example of this, of course, would be punks from the 1970s. <laughs> That's the, the obvious example. And uh, as I said, Veblen's conspicuous consumption led to these all these related theories. And uh, one research or coined the term conspicuous outrage. And that is really <laughs> what punks were showing through their dress, that they were not going to adhere. And generally subcultures, the term sub does mean under, and these are not wealthy groups of young people. They tend to be working class young people and they choose deliberately to distinguish themselves through their clothing and their music and just other other values that they have. So the thing I do always try to clarify to my students is, uh, it, in my perception, the hippies do not meet the criteria to be considered a subculture because uh, a lot of the hippies were middle class and even upper class young people. They were just rebelling against their parents, but they didn't have that same underclass uh, situation. So hippies are usually described as the counterculture. They were against the norm, but they were not, they were not uh, choosing not to adhere to it in the same way as a subculture would. For a long time, uh, hippie culture became mainstream culture, you know, just the aesthetic and the idealism in the late 60s, early 70s, that it really did take on a mainstream uh, popularity. Right. And, and as you said, so many of the people that uh, propagated the hippie movement were benefiting from mainstream culture because they were mm -hmm. a part of it and were recognized mm -hmm. by it. So, oh yeah. So, so uh, I would say probably the main thing. A lot of style tribes uh, also have a music genre that is closely associated with them. Uh, so. For example, um, let's see, I'm trying to think, what's what's a good one? Well, there's the TED, uh, one of the earliest style tribes is called the TEDs, and they were in London, and they dressed in a variation of Edwardian fashion, and they had their own music to go with it. Uh, also, um, for example, the... Um, Mod subculture mm. started also in London. They had uh, bands that they like jazz. They, they like jazz. And they were really a good example of a whole lifestyle, which included, uh, even though they were British, they had a very continental appearance. So Italian Vespas and uh, very slim cut French or Italian suits for the young men. They'd wear parkas over them so that they're <laughs> immaculate suits would not get dirty while they rode their Vespas. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, exactly. A great love of Italian coffee, French new wave cinema, and like I said, um, jazz music. So that was, it's more than just a look. It is, it's a whole lifestyle. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like a chicken and the egg kind of thing. I mean, you say that it, that often these style tribes are associated with some form of popular culture. Um, do you think it's just popular culture or 
something like that, that is that really the only real influence on cultural trends today? Mm, I'm hard pressed to think of an example that is not affiliated with popular culture. A lot of trends that are affiliated with high culture, for example, like if an artist will do a collaboration with a brand, those tend to still be at the very highest levels of society. So I would say, yeah, I think it's still very heavily popular culture. Um, the influence is primarily popular culture. Uh, one style tribe that I think is just so fun is steampunk. And they're fun because they have uh, they don't have a particularly musical genre associated with them, but they do have a literary genre. Um, Jules Verne, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, reimagined in the present day is just kind of neat. Uh, it's this kind of neat sci-fi offshoot that also has a lot of Western influence in it and some very um, innovative technology too, which is just, mm. it is, it's a lot of fun. For people who don't really know what steampunk is, can you describe what that aesthetic looks like a little bit? Um, sure. It What it is, and it's interesting because we see it depicted in popular culture. Uh, just a lot of people might not be able to pinpoint it if they did see it. Probably one of the films that really had a um, a steampunk aesthetic, although it wasn't specifically described as that, was the um, uh, Will Smith movie Wild Wild West, the remake of that. It was very much a steampunk aesthetic based on that look. But steampunk takes the idea of this uh, Victorian era fashion and technology and sort of reimagines what would modern technology look like if we if it evolved but we still used the building blocks and materials from the Victorian era. So they get just phenomenally creative with imaginary weapons that uh, look old, uh, you know, just pretend weapons, but also they will um, make their technology, their modern technology look like it is old. Um, for example, you can buy steampunk phone cases. I've seen examples of making a laptop look kind of like uh, an old time typewriter with gears and mechanisms on it. And uh, the, the clothing has a definite uh, a definite Edwardian slash Wild West influence. It has a Wild West influence in part because a lot of steampunk uh, originated from the West Coast of California, mm. but also uh, just it sort of mingled with this uh, Jules Verne era uh, style as well. So you will a lot of overcoats and top hats and leather and corsets, but they all look retro futuristic, which it's just a lot of fun. I think it's it's really cool. Have you ever tried 
doing any kind of steampunk fashion. <laughs> I'm just a fan. That's what I like to say. I'm I'm a I'm a part I'm I'm a, I'm not a participant, but I'm a fan and an observer. And so I I enjoy I enjoy watching from the sidelines. I my dress is pretty darn indistinct, you know, it's indistinct. I I don't really stand out through my clothing because I enjoy blending in and watching and and surreptitiously taking photos. That's where I get my enjoyment being the spectator <laughs> but was there any at any point in your life where you did sort of participate in one of these style tribes oh yeah because <laughs> I was young <laughs> yeah yeah as a young person I I participated uh it would be very easy uh to find me and a group of friends in our all black with my dark lipstick and my dyed hair uh, from the late 80s. Uh, I always jokingly describe myself as I was kind of goth light, but <laughs> I certainly enjoyed, uh, you know, I, I definitely liked the bands of that era. And uh, a lot of goth, which is a lot of fun because goth is great because for a variety of reasons, it's great because it's both a music genre. There's, there's goth artists, many of whom are still popular today. It's also great because, yes, it's also based in literature, like uh, certain books like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is sort of, you know, the the standard. But also because a lot of people leave their subculture behind as they grow. But goths, more than any other subculture, um, will stay within the 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 uh, style tribe yet mature. And so there are, they jokingly call them elder goths, which I think is so (laughs) cute. So elder goths. And so elder goths are the ones that have enough money to be able to participate in things like the um, Whitby goth festival that is held in England and people travel from all over and wear just these incredible outfits and spend time just enjoying each other's company and strolling in their incredible outfits and also uh, listening to to artists perform. So it, it sounds like just a terrific lot of fun. I think that's great. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I definitely have some old incriminating photos from those days. And I still love the cure. Gotta love the cure. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? I mean, that's like every I'm... sad girl's Friday night where like just yeah, I would every say, time you want to feel but, sad about yourself. Yeah, one of the the best things I got to do was uh in 2018, I was fortunate enough to go to their Hyde Park uh, 40th anniversary concert and 65,000 people attended. And it was just one of the most incredible shows of my life, but I hadn't seen them in a very long time. And it was just, it was a lot of fun. And yes, lots of elder goths present. I will say that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it seems that the longevity of a trend or a tribe is, is based on whatever they're core idea is or you know what you call a core concept um in the sense that steampunk is based on a core concept of uh you know edwardian the edwardian era or goth is based on a core concept of i mean well it's based on like the gothic tradition and other mediums like literature and art right but i I mean 
You can yeah, say. I think once again, I'm so sorry, just idea popped in my head. I think once again, it really also comes back to that idea of does the trend mutate or adapt? And we really saw this with goth when uh, the whole idea of cyber goth came out, you know, so it had that core concept of goth, but it looked totally innovative. And then for a while, Alexander Wang, who's a, you know, very high-end designer, he did an entire collection, a runway collection, and it was described as health goth. And it was (laughs) this really cool, edgy stuff, but it was combined with athleisure. And that was pretty amazing. So there's all these, so there's variants on it that keep it fresh and lively. Um, Mod as a subculture while it still is identifiable, it really has changed a lot. And those subcultures that don't modify and change are the ones that kind of end up not being super um, uh, relevant in the future and are just kind of forgotten. Um, An example of that would be, you know, beatniks uh you know we know what a beatnik looks like the black turtleneck the black pants and we saw it go from fringe to trendy to mainstream when audrey hepburn's character they didn't call her a beatnik in funny face but she clearly was modeled after a beatnik girl but the whole look did not evolve and so beatniks didn't even really merit a mention in the book because they just they aren't that influential relative to more dynamic style tribes that are that we still see in some form or another today yeah i do have to admit that there are probably some incriminating photos of me online dressing up as a quote-unquote health goth in college very cool (laughs) went to some health goth parties in college it was it's it's very fun. It's basically a you know a, a haven for indie liberal kids, right? Yeah, that were yeah, like probably a little emo in college in high school. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so a lot of people there's there's a debate. Are style tribes dead? Other than sort of these core that I talk about in the book that still have adherence. Are there any new style tribes? Do new style tribes exist? And I would say that they do, but like so much else, they tend to be perhaps a little bit faster now. And so scene kids and emo kids, I mean, those are clear examples of style tribes, but they just sort of hit a little bit faster and went out a little bit quicker than uh, something from the 1970s that took a really long time because of technology and communication to spread. So, Mm. but I think they're still out there. I'm very tired already of these articles about the Visco girl. And uh, that is, you know, with scrunchies and vans and hydro flasks and, Mm. and puka shell necklaces and stuff. And it's more fatiguing because I have a 12 year old who has devoted her life to looking like this. I mean, that's all (laughs) she to do so it's perhaps i mean i support it obviously i'm not going to be one to tell her not to not to you know you know participate in the fashion system but uh i think where i'm a little troubled by it is visco girls are so 
uh, reliant on a particular brand. And that, I would say, is a new thing. Before, it was just a style. Now it's not just a style. It has to be a particular brand. And that, to me, smacks of corporatization, you know. So I don't know. We'll have to see how, how it plays out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're touching on something really important that fashion in the 21st century is now fundamentally shaped by the internet and also by late capitalism in a way that it never was before. Um, yeah. How how does that actually impact designers? How if if the fashion trending process is so much faster than it ever was before, how do designers find inspiration? in trends and how do they actually gather information from consumers that could be involved or be could be included in a forecast if things move so rapidly yeah well i think a lot of my students are very surprised at fashion uh forecasting not being intuition and I always tell people you are not looking for a needle in a haystack you don't want that (laughs) you are looking for the big picture fashion forecasting does not want this one little tiny thing hidden you are trying to make connections and and synthesize those connections down into ideas that you can readily communicate. So no, you're not looking for this one little thing. You're trying to make sense of the big picture, the whole thing. So we spend a lot of our time looking at the Zeitgeist, which is a German noun that means spirit of our times. And that is another concept that was made by yet another academic back in the 1920s. Uh, His name is uh, Nystrom. And he coined the Zeitgeist as a way to understand uh, the current times and, and fashion as a part of that. So we spent a lot of our time actually researching, you know, what are the dominant events that our present day is known for and what are our dominating social groups? Who has the power and what are our dominating ideals? What do we as a society value? And by contrast, what are our dominating attitudes? What are what do we feel about things? Are we cynical about them or are we positive towards uh, a topic? And finally, uh, what is our dominating technology? And I my students spend a good long period of time uh, assessing these things and then really trying in concrete ways to project how each of these five factors might influence fashion in the next year and it could be everything from particular uh slogan tees or protest tees to uh color taking on a particular a particular color uh as a symbol having prominence or a particular item uh gaining significance and we just try to anticipate how will all these things uh show up in fashion in the next six months to a year We only have time for one more question, but on that note, as a fashion forecaster, I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of forecasting now. I mean, do you have any predictions for the next five years or so? Like, what would you actually like to see? Things that, all right, things that I think are going to be important, and we're already seeing this, so I'm sorry, I'm probably not going to give you your money's worth, but (laughs) we are... For so long, you know, uh, we've been 
considering our food. And I feel like we've really turned our attention to the conditions and caliber of our food. And I think now we're going to start seeing our apparel being eyed with the same level of scrutiny. And a thing that's sort of all coming together is environmentalism, obviously, is a bigger topic now than it has been in a very long time. And people are being asked to consider their consumption patterns. And also that sort of dovetails with this whole minimalist uh, Marie Kondo's um, art of tidying up. And so Mm. we sort of have this whole idea of, of making environmentally ethical choices and not wasting resources combined with this ideal of minimalism. So we've got these two things going. And I think that that will hopefully result in people making more deliberate choices. For so long, cost has been a primary driver of clothing purchase. You know, I bought it because it's cheap, you know, very low economic barrier. What I am hoping will happen, and there are a couple of brands that are doing it and they're literally promoting, you know, yes, we are, we are a costly brand, but you will get value for this. And, you know, buy some, it will last, you know, buy some, you will love it. You will continue to love it. This will be a staple of your wardrobe for years to come. So I do hope that we will see an impetus to a higher quality and insistence on higher quality and on styles that I would describe as transcending fads uh, and in and out. And instead, uh, people thinking more in terms of building a wardrobe that communicates who they are as opposed to just buying lots of different looks and discarding them as soon as they fall apart because the quality is so low or um, because of planned obsolescence, they've just decided that it's out, which is something a forecaster would never do. A forecaster (laughs) knows that, that if anyone's wearing it, it's still in. So don't let anybody tell you something's out because that is sort of just a editorial concept for a fashion magazine. Mm. Well, if someone's wearing it, it's in. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's, (laughs) super reassuring (laughs) well um this has been lovely um i'm once again i'm rebecca morofsky on uh bloomsbury academics podcast talking to lauren devita author of fashion forecasting you can find her book at bloomsbury's website thank you so much for being on the show thank you rebecca it was a real pleasure